Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Mark Boris, and this is an episode of Straight Talk. Now, this is a bit of a different chat today. I brought my financial advisor, Peter Simpson from Shore & Partners, onto the show to talk about investing. Yep, you're all at home, you might want to start investing. Gone are the days of relying on bank interest to grow your wealth. You've got to look for other ways to do it. One of them is actually investing into the share market. More and more people are looking to invest in the share market, especially since this pandemic has knocked us around so hard. And it's becoming increasingly accessible. Yep, investing is getting easier. You've got kids on TikTok sharing their sometimes ill-advised investing tips. And there are investor apps where you can hand just as little as $5 over and you become an investor. So I thought, why don't I bring on my own advisor onto the show to talk about things like cryptocurrency, the share market. Is everyone, for example, excited about Afterpay? When should I invest? When should I sell? Things to consider before making that initial step towards investing. So it's time for No Bullshit with Peter Simpson. Peter Simpson, welcome to Straight Talk, mate, an episode of Straight Talk. Thank you very much. Now, I've got to declare my interest here. Um, Peter Simpson is from Shore & Partners and uh, he looks after my personal investments. Shore & Partners are the firm that I use to make investments in the stock market. Um, They're they're across the road from my office in Chifley, Chifley Tower. Although Peter sort of operates out of Orange (laughs) at his home base and then comes into Chifley Tower whenever he feels like um, gracing the halls of uh, the Shore & Partners building. But no... He's, he's in a business that can operate from home, bottom line. And that wasn't a COVID decision either, was it, mate? That was years ago you made that decision. Yeah, that's right, before yeah. the – Way before. So you're, ahead of, you're ahead of the curve. Ahead of the, way, curve, way ahead of the for, curve for one thing, yeah. People who listen to this show, varying age groups across a, a really broad demographic, but the, those people who are in that sort of 20 to 39 category, years of age I'm talking about, whilst they sort of might understand about a mortgage and – real estate might, um, they're completely mystified about the share market. And nine times out of ten, if they're an employee, they don't even know where their employee superannuation is going to. They definitely don't know where it's being invested in. They're just hoping someone's doing a fucking good job, you know, like whether they are, they aren't, that they'll find out one day when they turn 65 or around that period. Uh, the second thing is the share market is on fire. Every time I turn the TV on, and I, it doesn't matter whether I'm listening to the ABC, listen to Alan Kohler, who for my money is the only one worth listening to on the ABC at the end of the 7 o'clock news, 
or I'm listening to someone from Channel 7 um, at the end of the news, the market seems to be going off, going up and up and up and up and up. And I, and I got mates, like I was, I was with some copper mates this morning, police mate, mates of mine who, you know, I box with them every Wednesday. One of the cops there said to me that his daughter, who's maybe she's 16 now, but when she was 15, bought Afterpay at the beginning of last year when it was eight bucks. Yeah. It's now fucking 100 and something. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, you dumb bastard. Why aren't you involved in these things? And, and I, I just get a bit freaked out. And I mean, I'm, I'm like everyone else. I want to make money like everyone else making. So, which is why I actually come and saw you maybe the beginning of this year. Was it the beginning of this year? Uh, yeah. And I said, yeah. oh, mate, let's, I want to, here's yeah. some money. Let's yeah. do this shit. That's good. You're still talking to me. I've yeah, lasted, <laughs> you've lasted, <laughs> lasted this long. that long. <laughs> so, and, and, but you also have a few other views on the market. So I, I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to say, why do you think this phenomenon of people investing in shares at all ages now, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds on TikTok talking about share markets, people across the board investing money, then there's a whole lot of other people who've got no fucking idea aren't investing. What, what do you think this phenomenon about the share market exists today? What's going on? As in why more of these young people are why they interested all in getting involved? Well, I think, I mean, the main reason is, as you say, the market's been going very well since COVID and a lot of people did not expect that to happen. Yeah. Why, why do you think it's gone well after COVID or post-COVID? Well, the main reason is I guess they're worried of a deflationary collapse. I guess if people are at home and they, they don't have jobs and they're not spending, um, they're the multiplier effect of that, um, you know, people out of work, then defaults and the, the alternative of a deflationary collapse is, is very bad for the economy. So I guess the reason it's done so well is there's been this unprecedented amounts of of monetary policy, which is basically just uh, dropping interest rates to zero around the world and then also printing money. I think Government's pumping money into the system. Pumping money in, printing it out globally. of nowhere. It's globally. I think the US money supply went up 40% uh, just in the last 12 months. So, no, but, so that's yeah, liquidity that's out there that's got to go somewhere. So some goes to Bitcoin, some goes to housing, some goes to shares, some goes – and it always ends up somewhere and something's always in favour and something's always out of favour. And as you say, timing those things is the – is the hard part because you mentioned Afterpay, I think, did it went from one dollar to one hundred and fifty, and now it's back to seventy. And in these early stage companies, you've got to expect that you've got to invest for the long term. You've got to expect volatility. And Afterpay, in the, in the case of that, that company has changed consumer lending. So people our age, you had a credit card, and if you were on top of things, you paid off every month. You didn't pay the money. The young have a distrust of the banks. The guys involved with Afterpay, Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisen just reinvented the wheel on how people can pay. So the old way was, say you had a retail shop and you wanted to buy something, you'd go in, you might lay by it, you put some money down. It was bad for the retailer because they had to hold the stock and pay for that. And then also these might be fast changing consumer goods that might go out of fashion. The person might come back and you've had your new stock that hasn't been sold because they haven't followed through with it. So I guess the lay-by system didn't really work for the retailer. But then when you look at the consumer, I guess if you were paying credit card fees on that, these young people had distrust of the banks and Afterpay basically reinvented the wheel said, okay, we'll pay the money on behalf of the consumer, say the goods $100, you pay me back $25 in four equal instalments, so no extra payment to you and they are every two weeks, which matched up with most of the um, young people's when they get paid. Then Afterpay would take a clip from money they paid 
the retailer. So the retailer get ninety six dollars. So in effect, and afterpay, afterpay takes four bucks. Afterpay takes four bucks. So afterpay is sort of helping the retailer sell the goods. Exactly, yeah. and it manages the cash flow of these young consumers. And you're right, it helps the retailers sell the goods and it makes them do a bigger basket size because they might have one thing on and then another thing. But why do um, we then, but what but why, but these young people investing in Afterpay? I mean, what are, I mean well, are they so smart? If they have, I mean, they've recognised that it was a great business model because you get that 4% and you get it over eight weeks basically for, for Afterpay. And then they can they start out with a small amount, like $100. So there's not much risk to Afterpay. If you don't pay it back, they lose $100. But... Their algorithms get better of knowing who to lend to. Yeah. But then the other big bit about Afterpay is that 4% that they get over eight weeks, they can do again and again over the year. So I don't know what that works out, eight or nine times or something. So they, instead of getting 4%, they get a 30-odd percent so return on capital. Return. Massive returns and relatively low risk because they start off small and they've grown. I mean, the interesting story about that one was, and this is, I guess, how things have changed so much, that you can – a business can grow so quickly now that it didn't used to be able to. So in Afterpay's case, they got, I think it was just before Christmas, they wanted to get into the US. I think they've been trying to get involved with the Kardashians who have millions of Instagram followers. They, I think it was Kylie Jenner who does the lipstick and makeup kits. She contacted them, like gave them a few days or some very small amount of time, said, I'm about to do a new range. Can you do it on Afterpay? They managed to do it and she had 100 million followers and then bang. So, I mean, I was I've, I miss a lot of stocks and sometimes I get some. That was one I was lucky enough to have from an early stage for clients. I've been basically just trimming it along the way. But on that one, because I don't use – I'm above that generation and I don't use use Afterpay, but my wife does a lot of online shopping and she was going, I'm seeing this Afterpay everywhere. I'm seeing it on Peter's of Kensington. I'm seeing it here. I'm seeing it there. So maybe those young savvy consumers were using it and thought this is consumer oriented. This is what I want. And this will displace credit cards. Because, and that's I mean, what I, it's done. I mean, I, I guess what it's fair to say is that um, Peter works at a stockbroking firm and, you know, they tend to look after the more sort of say sophisticated um, investors. Um, whereas these people are probably buying it through Comsec accounts or whatever. They're, 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 you know, these young kids, they definitely don't come to you as a stockbroker. Um, but, but nonetheless, I mean, the reason I wanted you here today is to sort of explain where these this momentum is coming from. Like, uh, I mean, all right, we've got the kids investing in Afterpay because they know more about it. They're probably experiencing it. Somewhere along the line, they've got the savvy to say, why don't I invest in these stocks? But then let's just let's just put them aside because they're, they're sort of uh, penny-dreadful investors, so to speak. I mean, they you know, they maybe represent half a percent of the total share register of Afterpay. Then you get this flood of people who just – do go through stockbrokers and say to the stockbroker, get me some of that afterpay. Stockbroking has changed. In the early days, it was it was about execution and there wasn't the inter- – I've, since I've been stockbroking since the early 2000s, uh, since before 2000, it was – the internet was all, always there. So it was never about execution. It was about advice and managing money and managing risks and protecting downside according to a client's needs. And the best way I find, and most of my clients do, is they sign a mandate um, – and they go, look, you manage it according to this mandate. There's various rules around it. I'm not going to put it all in one stock. I might have limits of 5% of the stock. Or, and then I manage for the long term. And the beauty of that is it's, it's better for the client because you're not going to get everything right. Basically, the best fund managers get six out of 10 stocks right. So you're always going to have losers. I mean, if you held Amazon from the start, that has had four, I was looking at the chart of that, that's had four times you would have held it through 70% pullbacks. So volatility is inevitable and to make the big bucks, you've got to be able to wear it. You've got to be able to 
stomach that, and some people can't, and that's fine. That's why they're they're either in government so, bonds or they're in. Well, okay, so like you're right. So like Tesla's a good example. How does something like Tesla get so valuable? Gosh, there's I mean, there's so many reasons why that happens, and it'll never change. Basically, the market goes between fear and greed, and it always will. And then there's now algorithms designed around that that would make things move quicker. You then got all this exchange traded funds. So that as it gets bigger, it goes into an index and then more buying happens. So as Tesla gets to a certain market capitalization, in other words, the share price multiplied by the number of shares on issue gets it to a, a, a size, a dollar size, um, it gets into certain indexes um, yeah. and the big fund managers have to have it. Well, Is that the, what you're talking about? The, yeah, the big um, exchange traded, so the low-cost ones have to have it because right. it goes, say, into a top 100 index or a top 50 and then it becomes a bigger size, so then they have to buy more of that stock. Which pushes the price up. And it's irrespective of value. So it's stupid and people – and ETFs can be good and they – you know, if you've got a small amount of money, yeah, an ETF's great because you'll have the bad stocks drop out of the index. You know, if there's structural change, maybe – 20 years ago, you had Ostrom Nilex or something in the top 20, and now you've got Afterpay, and the good ones come in. So, I mean, it has its advantage. It's more for, I find, ETFs for a smaller client because you can get that diversity and you can just get the basically the growth, the GDP growth, or the, or I mean, GDP in its basic form is just population growth plus, plus productivity improvements. So you can capture that and you can, I mean, the market for 100 years, property market, the share market's probably done something close to 10% per annum. So that's a great way to get started. So if you've got a few grand, you, you'd have to pick one stock and that stock might be down 50% as we're talking. Like it, it's just the fact of the market. So it's a great way to spread um, but get that long-term growth. Yeah. And you can dollar cost average. You can keep buying it. Or I might use ETFs for a certain sector or a certain play. You can now get ETFs on on a sector or you can do it on emerging markets or you can do it on somewhere you don't have a specialty or you can do it on one to so you sort of spread short the market. Yeah, you, you can. Spread your, but you're going with the momentum. So momentum's a big thing when it comes to stock prices or stock markets. Huge. I mean, pe- people got money, for me anyway, the basic process here is that people have money and they say, okay, what are the asset classes I can invest in? I can invest in property, but that means I've got to go borrow some money and maybe I don't qualify for a loan. Um, I might not have a big enough deposit or I might just be scared of the property market because it's just been galloping along a bit too too hard for me. Yeah. Or it might that property might involve a lot of work. You might have to rent out. You might have problems yeah. with the tenants. You might have things going wrong. You might, I just don't understand the market. Yeah. It's too scary. Or you've got to pick one place in one area, yep. Uh, and I might want to diversify. Or you can go and put your money in deposit with the bank or you're going to get fuck all for that. Largely it's less than 1% um, per annum. Whatever you earn, you got to pay tax on, and if you take away inflation after you pay the tax, you've actually probably lost money, gone backwards. Correct. So, like, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars and you get one percent per annum, you're getting a thousand dollars interest. You got to pay tax on a thousand dollars, assuming your tax brackets at the higher end. You know, you're going to pay four hundred dollars of that one thousand dollars. You lose you with six hundred dollars, and inflation is running at uh, say one and a half percent. You've actually gone backwards. You're, Correct. You're, your original one hundred thousand is now ninety. Buying you less. That's right. Okay, so, like, that doesn't make sense. Yep. And then there's stock market. Um, this other sort of exotics, which most people don't understand and they're pretty dangerous. So momentum is, I think anyway, and you, you tell me, momentum is sort of caused because maybe there's no other alternatives or, or, or the stock market represents one of the best alternatives. It's not fundamentals. 
or you just don't want to miss out. Someone else is saying yeah, they've got half you're missing out, well, that's me. Yeah, no, that was yeah. me. Fuck me. I've got to, <laughs> everyone seems to be making shitloads of money in the stock market. I'm going to get in. Yeah. So put the fear of missing out bit. I mean, or the, that's greed. Yeah, that's me being greedy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you said earlier, fear and greed. Yeah. Um, I'm buying because I'm greedy. Okay. I yep. mean, in a funny sort of way. Um, but there's money. You said earlier, there's a lot of money, a lot of liquidity. When when the U.S. government puts two trillion dollars back into the economy, when the Australian government puts eight hundred billion dollars back into our economy, everyone goes, "Oh, well, that sounds great," because I haven't really seen anything. But it actually ends up in our pockets somehow. Mm. Eventually, it makes its way into the system. It's starting to make its way into the system now. It's got to go somewhere. It's going to, and you make it at the end of the day. You got profit. You got to invest it somewhere. What the fuck yeah. are you going to do with it? Yeah, there's so much to talk about, isn't there? Because there is a lot happening. But are you seeing that now? Is it is it massive momentum? Abs- absolutely, absolutely. And the, I guess the the thing is, and it's always hard when you're in something to not get involved in that. But you've always got to take a step back, and it's about avoiding the noise. And I look at technicals, which might take an account when that momentum is slowing. So it gives me a chance to get out. But I also look at the fundamentals, which might be, you know, your earnings multiple, or your cash flow multiple. And But if I looked at Amazon yeah, and I look at the fundamentals yeah. two years ago, I would have made a lot more money if I'd invested two years ago than today, right? Yeah. Um, but the fundamentals were said to me, well, what the fuck are you do? It doesn't make money. Yeah. It, it's it's trading on a 50 times Great multiple. Point. Great point, great point. Like These high-growth companies, basically the holy grail is because they can reinvest in themselves at high rates of return, and that's what you – it's that incremental capital, and that's what you want from a company, and that's how you get these companies going up a lot. I mean, as you say, that one or, or Afterpay's case might not be making money yet, but often they have these enigmatic CEOs that the market trusts and they believe in the long term. So they do the – work out what that company's going to earn the long term is it increases market share and then therefore can start putting up prices and then they discount that back, what they think is an intrinsic value today. Um, I guess the risk in all this, and this is where it all comes undone and they've done so well, is everything comes back to the risk-free rate of return. And in the US now, that long-term government bond, 10-year government bond is 1.7%. If inflation really starts coming and the Fed's saying it's transitory- The US Fed. The US Fed, sorry, yeah, the Federal Reserve is saying it's transitory, but I think probably we've had this 30 years of disinflation. I think that's changing. I think that they're big changes where they're saying it's supply-side disruptions, but you've got this huge amount of, we talked about the monetary policy, but also the fiscal policy, as you said, that trillions of dollars the US government, you know, 10% of GDP is putting into the market. You combine that with the monetary policy. And inflation, I think, will come the last... Uh, US figure was 4% annualised um, and they're, the Fed's saying, oh, no, don't worry about they're it. They're saying off a low base, though. Yeah, they're off a low base and they're saying don't worry about it. But they, we're seeing asset bubbles for, form. We saw, we're saw we seeing house prices go crazy. We saw Bitcoin. And, you know, you look back to before the GFC and US house prices were going crazy and they, they were saying, look, it's not a bubble. I mean, they're trying to manage this price stability and employment growth because you need certainty for business invest and... I guess they get that a little bit wrong and the monetary policy has big lags and they're going to let things run hot. They've said they're going to keep interest rates pinned here and the US at 0% for a few years. Um, There'll be big troubles down the line when those long-term interest rates have to go up because it'll affect the multiples you pay for everything, whether it's housing or stocks, everything comes back to that risk-free rate. If you keep flooding the market with money through fiscal policy, in other words, that is through lower taxes and through government spending on infrastructure and just, you know, handouts and tipping money into the system, 
and you have really low monetary policy, which basically means really low interest rates when people buy something, they borrow a really low interest rate. That's sort of flooding the market with, they call it liquidity, but flooding the market with cash. That's right. Um, and when you got when there's a lot of cash, if it somehow makes its way to me as a business owner, um, you know, which it can do, or it might make its way to me as a wage earner because the business I'm working for might decide to start to pay us bonuses or might decide to increase our wages or right. alternatively. Or as we get closer to full employment, they have to the pay. The unemployment creep, the unemployment number starts to drop. That puts us in a better position to negotiate a better deal. Yep. For example, restaurants. Um, because there's no immigration at the moment into Australia, restaurants rely heavily on immigration yep. um, to run the restaurant, both yep. as cooks and chefs and uh, front of house and, you know, wait staff, et cetera, like that. Um, all of a sudden those restaurants aren't getting those people and I've been talking to a few restaurant owners and they're telling me that their staff now work it out pretty fast and their good staff are saying, I want yeah, an increase. I want more, I want more money. Exactly. And exactly. as soon as you start to get a bit of wage inflation, in other words, yep. I earn more money than yep. I was last year as a salaried employer, as a wage earner, um, I'm going to spend more money. That's right, and, and that can affect companies' earnings, which is all the stock market is as well. Unless they can pass that on, that affects the stock. And market. the more money I earn, and the more money I spend, the more the vendor thinks, "Hang on, I'm not getting a lot of demand here. Um, maybe I'll just tweak the Absolutely. price a little bit. I might just put the price up." And once so, they go up, they don't ever put them back. Yeah, so you start know, to see so. inflation starting to come along. So these are the things that um, the market. Well, there's a lot of rumblings. In the market, there seems to be parallel markets at the moment, parallel thought processes at the moment. There's a lot of rumblings in the market that I've, I'm reading and hearing in your market, that is the stock market, um, there, whereby some are saying we might start to see some inflation both here and in America um, because we've been hit up with so much liquidity from governments, fiscal policy, monetary policy, every, every other damn thing. <laughs> um, and uh, we might start to see wages a little bit of wage pressure. In fact, the governments want wage pressure. They want wages to go up because it looks very good politically. Absolutely. If people's wages are going up, people go, wow, my wage is going up. I'm, yep. I'm very happy. Everyone's happy. And yeah. as their wage go up, though, we tend to spend more. Um, yep. And as we spend more, we put pressure on inflation. And as inflation goes up, uh, all of a sudden, the, the risk-free returns start to go up as well. The government yep. bond has yep. to respond. And uh, all of a sudden, the gap between risk-free and risk, risky investments or riskier investments starts to narrow, and that puts pressure on the share price. Absolutely. Downwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess the other thing to inflation, there's the demand side, and then there's also the cost side. We've seen all these costs, whether it's from lumber go up 70%, we've seen even thermal coal's gone up 50% in the last few months. Like everything, the average of all those commodities gone up about 50%. And when you say about this... Um, that risk-free rate going up. I guess a more hopefully there's a more simple way for for people listening to to understand. At the moment, the share market because you look forward to what it's going to earn next year is on 17 times earnings as an average. If you inverse that, you get what's called the earnings yield, so that what those companies are earning, and that's around about say six percent. So you're getting, and if the long-term bond around about 1.7%, you're getting 4.3% what's called equ- equity risk premium yeah. um, extra for taking on that risk. Let's make it a bit easier. Let's yeah. say you invest in a bank shares yeah. and bank A is paying you 6% return. Yeah. On, you pay 100 bucks, you get a six, yeah. six bucks, yeah. $6 a year return, dividend. Yeah. Um, and if let's say the uh, long-term- On uh, is 2%. 2%. You're getting an extra 4% for taking the risk of investing in the bank. Yep. That's the bottom line. That's that's, that's the way it's That is the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And I guess if, say, those long-term interest rates go from 2 to 5%, then to get that same 
four percent equity risk premium, nine percent or something. Then, well, let's so let's say it goes from two to four percent to keep that same equity risk premium. Your PE multiple, of the market would have to come back twenty percent, so it would go from seventeen to fourteen times. Yeah, yeah. So, which, um, which means, but I think these are more problems in six to twelve months' time. I think maybe things are a bit overheated at the moment. Maybe needs a bit of a flush so, well, out. That, that's my whole point. Like, I'm I'm trying to work out. Is the whole market overheated or are the sectors of the market overheated or is it is our domestic market overheated relative to the international market or what's overheated? What, In your opinion, what do you think is overheated? Oh, okay. I mean, until recently. Or are you just nervous about fucking so many people making so many investments? I mean, or is it more fundamental? I, I mean, the easiest way to, I guess, people always have a view on the market even if they're not in it. They might say the market's going to crash or the market's overvalued or the market's well, undervalued. Especially if they're not in it. They're always saying that. Yeah, exactly. Because they want it to crash. That's right. But I don't like to think of the market like that. I like to think of it as, as a collection of businesses. So, And those businesses, some will do well in different environments. Some are out of favour. Like I say, at the moment, you might A2 milk, um, you say the market's overheated. A2 milk nine months ago was at $20 or a year ago. And now it's at five dollars. Got a massive kick in the ass. Yeah, yeah, massive kick in the ass. And that was the previous because they, they didn't meet their forecasts. Didn't meet their forecasts. And the market is very short term orientated. So that business, the long term value of that business, because of Australia's issues with China and the what's called the Daegu Channel, where students take over and sell the A two formula over into China, is not happening because um, of COVID. But the market is just so short term orientated because say you look back into the COVID meltdown like some of these companies you, you know they're going to be around for 30 years and they might might lose one year of earnings so theoretically it should be like three percent value of that stock should fall but they'll fall by 70 percent so like it's irrational it's irrational but is the market rational or is the market irrational what do you think i think it's irrational always you're getting things overvalued and you're getting things undervalued like even now with all this liquidity around you're getting some companies that were 12 months ago the market darlings like an a2 Still sells the same thing. hasn't had any brand damage. Yes, it's selling less because China's not consuming as much, but they've got numerous growth avenues. They've got no debt. They've got cash in their balance sheet. So say you could buy that. It's a five bucks. Who knows? Maybe it goes to three bucks. But at some stage in six or 12 months' time, maybe two years' time, that'll be back in favour. Its profits will be growing. So would you say buy in the dip then? I mean, on something like that, I'd then go to the technicals. I haven't looked at that in the last little recent bit, but I'd be looking at things like, divergences in momentum indicators. So if the price kept going down, but the rate of change of that decline started slowing, or it set up a bit of a base where it went sideways for a bit, you know, there are various things, and I'll be looking at chart patterns and different things unrelated to the fundamentals to sort of try and find something that's so heavily out of favour when that might so turn. So you like a trend analysis. Yeah. So you like yeah. the price. Or I'd, or I'd start buying gradually because, you know, it's a quality business, it's capital light, it can grow, you know, exponentially because you've seen it. Its profits were, you know, they've gone down two thirds, uh, and they can go back up to there there again. You got multiples of the current price. Yeah, these I, things go in and out of favour. There's no doubt, markets are irrational, and pockets of the markets are irrational, and it becomes even um, even more so when there's liquidity flooding it everywhere. I mean, and that could be whether it's the uninformed people punting on something with no earnings, or it could be. Um, informed people that are forced out. There's various reasons why, say, a fund manager, when things are falling, has to sell because people then take their money out because they're going, I can't handle this. And then they're forced to sell at price they wouldn't want to sell. Once a snowball starts gathering pace, it's you don't want to stand in front of it. So I don't mind 
momentum. I'm not against it. I'm not against letting stocks go overvalued. Plenty of times in my life I've sold things and thought, oh, that's that's a good price. And then you miss that whole last part where it goes up miles. So it's more about, on all these things, it's about having a balance. I think that's the key. Like when things are overvalued, you're gradually selling or when things, you like a quality business, then you might gradually buy it with expectation. You might not be getting the low. I think one of the great investors said something like, I always buy too soon and I always sell too early or something something, something along those lines. That's but, me. And I'm not one of the greatest <laughs> that, investors. Yeah. And I'm one of the greatest investors. definitely sell too early. So yeah. I just go to the brain. We're going to come straight back. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually want to start to talk about new generations of investors who actually have views on ethical investing and what effect is that happening on in the market. Have you seen that turn darlings into monsters and uh, where people just, just to avoid things like thermal coal, for example? That's it. Absolutely. So and I'm, as an advisor, I've got to be mindful of that because yeah. that's the client's wishes and more and more, especially the young. We're seeing it all the companies now that's big in their presentations. They have to do it. All the governments are going to these zero emissions and that creates opportunities in itself, that's for sure. Okay, we'll go to the break, we'll come straight back. Being in business is fucking hard. And at the end of the day, all your time, effort, money and sweat and blood and tears has got to amount to something. Since beginning of this year when I held my first masterclass, I have been sitting down and writing out my playbook, which I'm now sharing with you. I've experienced some of the greatest business minds in this country. All of those experiences are in this playbook. Peter, I mean, you, you know, you all got your mates, and your families, and you go to the barbecue, and you, they ask you what you do, and you say you're a stockbroker, and people automatically think, oh, you know everything about the fucking stock market, and uh... yeah, um, and I guess my views on, like a lot of things, as we get older, your views change, and you're constantly trying to learn and. I hopefully not make the same mistakes too many times, but inevitability of the stock market is you, no matter how good you get, you're always going to be making mistakes. And I think that's one thing I've learned. I always had this fixed mindset and now I've taken on more of that growth mindset where you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn from them. And my views have evolved, my views on different stocks, uh, the way I do my business, plenty of things. So you get better at filtering out the noise and focusing on what actually does move a company and move a business. And different businesses have various drivers that make a difference. And otherwise, you you might read a lot of noise in the papers that might not affect it at all. Um, so do you, do you ignore all the... What's written in the papers? I mean, do you, do you, I mean, do every morning do you pick up the Fin Review and uh, I whatever? pick it up and I just glance for stories. But no, in the early days, I used to read everything in the paper. Um, it's going to sound bad to journalists, but no. sometimes I might even use it as a bit of a reverse indicator, like if it's becoming well-heated or well-talked about. As much as you want to be a robot, it's hard to be a robot sometimes. Like a recent example was I started, for various reasons, I thought Crown was exceptionally good value. It had quality assets, and that's what you're looking for. Like you're saying, if you've got Crown Casino in Sydney or I own the Perth one or the Melbourne one, they're quality assets. They're going to be around. There's not going to be taken over by another 10 casinos. It's a symbiotic relationship with the government. They're getting the monopolies. But there was all this news about Royal Commissions, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. And I was looking at it, I'm going, this is actually very cheap. I, I like this stock. Major owner there, Packer, that's probably willing to sell. It's got people that have bid for it in the past. Um, it's got people on the share register that own shares that are, would be interested in their assets. Blackstone was there. And it's got people that would benefit, like Echo, by take, getting rid of a competitor. So all these reasons that look cheap, I started buying for clients and then you just every day there's a new thing in the paper about new negative things. And I didn't even get through all my clients because I was just thinking, I've got time on this one. I don't need to. And then 
whatever, a very short time after it's bid for and it's up deep. So it's like some clients got it and some missed out. And Okay, the Crown's actually a good one for a number of reasons. Um, what effect do those ethical views have on a stock over time? I think it will have a bigger and bigger impact. I think it will be really big. Like you say, like previously when I started doing discretionary portfolios and managing it, taking it out of the client's hands, doing it on my own according to a mandate. Big issues then were things like I don't want gambling, so I don't want tobacco or I don't want, you know, more recent times maybe I don't want coal. But, but going forward, I mean, my clients are normally – older clients with decent-sized super funds and the older generation taking a broad brush but is less concerned about these environmental issues. The younger generation have learned at school, it's it's big. Like you give them a plastic straw from McDonald's, they'll blow up, Yeah, um, which is fair enough, which is all good. But it's sort of like it's all part of this melting pot of different generations. But I've okay. seen it in companies and companies are being really particular. They, ha- they have to. Um, in terms of clients... Not really. I'm sort of, I should be doing that discussion more, um, but there's, I mean, every company, like even if you think it's clean, is going to be doing something. So it's really hard. I mean, there's exchange-traded funds that can invest in so-called ethical stocks, but what the measures of different stocks they do is is another thing. I mean, these things will naturally change anyway. Like if, if, say, thermal coal prices have doubled, but that's probably a shorter-term thing because you need this baseline power while this transition's happening and there won't be new... You know, governments won't allow new mines to be built. Bankers won't allow money to be lent to to raise money to do new mines. So the ones that are there actually can do quite well for a bit and make some good cash flow. But their, their future is limited. But their future, naturally, you're right. In 30 years, we won't be talking about you gold to, stocks. You've got to work out when to get off the bandwagon. That's right. Though, and and when, in when the interim, you've got this uranium that's clean energy. You've probably got thermocol still there. You've got gas. You've got until we get to the, you know, the, the better, all these other forms and technology. I mean, I go back to the 80s when I used to invest a fair bit and I was one of these, uh, you know, 30-year-olds, like I guess that, that exists today, who I'd have a crack at anything. And uh, i never forget, I, there was a bloke in Perth, his name was Peter Briggs, and he had a business called Ferrovanadian and it was some sort of um, listed entity. It was some sort of um, particular mineral that, he, that you got out of the ground that was used for something in particular and it looked like he had control of everything. And all, all the stockbrokers around town, all the old <laughs> old school guys, like the County NetWest guys and all you know, who I sort of used to hang out with a bit, they were all the same age as me. Everyone was talking about it. Like it was mental. Yeah. And I thought, that's it, I'm buying some. Yeah. And I bought some and they, they went from, like I can't remember if it went from a dollar to $9 or something like that. And there were a lot of stories around about other companies that do this sort of stuff in those days. Um, and But, of course, Ferrovanadium then went from $9 to $0.20. Cents. Yeah. And uh, the guy ended up in jail. Um, yeah. And uh, West Australian guy. And, uh, of course, I didn't sell it at $9. I sold it $0.20. Cents. Um, oh. But when, once the momentum starts to move oh. against the stock yeah. and the, the stories start to yeah. float around the system, irrespective of the fundamentals, it can drive the stock to nothing. Absolutely. And there'll be more and more of that as you – Yeah. You think and there'll you, be some co- commodities that – you know, it'll be displaced. Like at the moment, everyone will think that it's got to be used in electric vehicles and then the price will go up and then then they'll suddenly go, hang on, we can use this other mineral instead of that. When it's high, they buy and when it's low, they let them go or something. And that, those things will never change. Because, I mean, I was involved in a copper mine many years ago and in the end we decided to let get rid of it, let's give up the lease. It was in Chile, um, give up the lease or the licence because the price of copper relative to the cost of getting it out of the ground was didn't make sense and uh, our our costs of maintaining our license were quite expensive. 
I mean, I keep thinking, so fuck me, I wish it was still out today because you know, like the price of copper is ridiculous <laughs> yeah. and it still costs the same amount to get it out of the ground. Yeah. So you make a lot more money. Well, we've seen that with uranium since Fukushima with all these uranium plants are shut down because the price got so low, but that price will go back up again. They'll all restart and, we and they'll all make a lot of money. See, what creates momentum in anything, in any asset class, is sentiment about the asset class. Correct. How do you, someone like you, gauge the sentiment in the marketplace? I mean, do you just go around talking to people? I mean, how do you, how do you know where the sentiment is? You, you, you can sort of feel it. You've got people you, you speak to and some people you, you listen to more than others and you've got, I've got WhatsApp groups and you stay connected and then you get, you get over time, you develop people that you really rely on or think are very good in certain fields. It might be the oil field. I mean, in the early days when I started working, you'd do a couple of trades and then you'd go to lunch and yeah. that's how you'd sort of discuss things and work things out. Yeah, but that yeah. gets exhausting and I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get to Orange is to live a normal life, a normal life spend yeah. time with my kids, focus on what counts and because and, it, it, it is hard when you're in. Because on one hand you're saying you need to be around the noise Correct. to find out what the fucking noise is saying. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, sometimes the noise, you've got to get rid of the noise. True, And true. not be convinced by the noise. That must be true. That, that, how hard, I mean, like, because yeah. the way I see all momentum and sentiment at the moment, it's all just listening to the noise. It's all investing in the noise. Yeah. It, it seems to me that a lot of the people who are investing and creating this momentum for no fundamental reason, no, yeah. just no fundamentals, um, are not in a position to move away from the noise. They, they are just, they're listening yeah. to it, investing, investing yeah. it. Um, uh, and it, it sort of, Bothers me a little bit. Well, my best ideas, especially in the blue chips, the established companies, are when sentiment is is extremely poor. Like sentiment against Crown was was extremely poor in that scenario. Yeah. But even with the market, the same thing happens. When sentiment's poor, that's a great time to buy. And there are different ways you can get indicators of whether sentiment is high or low. There's fund managers surveys. There's there's these things we can we can get and we get access to. And when they're that's one of the, you know flags or ticks in the box. That's a really good point. You can buy on momentum because everybody else is investing. You just got to be before, you got like to, a you, Ponzi scheme. You, you want to make sure you're not at the end of that cycle. Yep. yep. You want to be, you don't, you'd be good to be at the beginning, but it's unlikely you're ever going to be at the beginning. And that's when the risk rewards are at its worst. When you're at the end of momentum, everyone likes it. That's when you can really, if something, there's an announcement that comes out, that's when you get 70% in a day or something. Or, right. Or... You can go back to the old adage of brokers, buy low and sell high. In other words, the amount of money you make is based on the entry price. So what you're saying is maybe instead of just well, looking at what's popular, what's become unpopular all of a sudden where the sentiment's a bit low and then you say, well, okay, but what are the fundamentals about that particular yeah. bank industry? Oh, let me yeah. pick a bank. Let's yeah. take Westpac at yeah. Uh, yeah. 12 bucks yep. during the COVID period. It's now, I don't know, 25, 26, whatever yep. it is, a year later. Yep. literally a year later, and like that's uh, 100% return plus. And all the smarties are telling me who made some minds, oh, yeah, I bought Westpac, yeah, of yeah. course you did. But, um, you know, which kills me, but uh, yeah. I didn't even think about it. because But I was, you could have bought anything then. You could have bought anything, but some of the things didn't go up. So you, well, that's you, right. You, and Westpac is a leverage play That's a good example, things. isn't it? So you're right, it is a good example, and it's going to go up more than and others. And CBA, 100 bucks, like... <laughs> Oh, oh no. unbelievable. Um, but basically they provision for all these bad debts and then they didn't happen. So then yeah. they write, take these provisions out and suddenly their profits are very strong and now they're doing capital management and doing extra dividends and things like that. But in that position, I guess, you had to be looking forward. you got to look forward and you got to say, okay, things are bad. How long is last? Things are bad. How long is it going to last? And the people that can do something about it, are they going to sit here idle? I was thinking, no. I mean, if you break GDP down, it's household consumption plus business investment. Government investment. Um, plus 
government spending plus the exports minus imports. imports. So the levers they had was they could throw a heap of money fiscally, which they had to because otherwise they're going to have riots because people are out of jobs, they'll throw a job seeker at it. And also they're going to bring the cost of borrowing down because they need to get people out there going, spending, borrowing, and get that multiplier effect, that that confidence effect. Um, house prices go up, they can draw on that, they can spend. And so I guess... What have they done in the past? Are they going to sit there and do nothing? No, they're not. So you're right. It's a great time, but you've got to be able to say buy it at twelve and be willing for it to the next day to be ten bucks. Well, that, that's the point. So the uh, the second part and of, have money. You've got to have cash to do that too. You've got to not be tied up in other things. You can't be borrowing them. So the, yeah. the second part of goes with buy low and sell high as a fundamental um, premise in buying in the stock market, as opposed to playing the momentum game. Okay. The second premise is you've got to be able to afford to hold it. Correct. You can't be in a position where you're borrowing money, you've got a margin loan or you can't afford Correct. to pay the interest payments or, or whatever it is. You've got to be prepared to hold on to it. So we're going to run out of time, but one of the things I just want to look at quickly is the relativity of returns. So if interest rates stay, the cash rate stays very, very low, which the reserve bank says it's going to yeah. for the next three or four years. And let's assume that's the truth. Yeah. Um, um, we never know, but let's assume that's the truth for the moment, then um, share prices in those entities that pay dividends are probably going to go up because people can't get a, can't get a, as good a return anyway. Absolutely. And then money flows to the next thing. Uh, I mean, chases- corporate bond yields or my hybrids now, you're only getting under 4%. Yeah, yeah. So it affects, affects absolutely everything. everything. So- but if you could know that that, Cash rate is going to stay low for. Well, the Reserve Bank said it. I know. I mean, how much weight do you put in that? Well, I guess if and if they are the Federal Reserve and the Reserve Bank going to, if inflation say in the next year or two really spikes up and they keep that pinned down, then that's why I have some gold in portfolios that follows real returns. So that's your nominal interest rate minus your inflation rate. So if they keep that interest rate at zero and inflation starts going up to five or six percent, then gold price. Well, because that's a store gold, of value. Gold, yeah. Gold, yeah. I mean, it's just an example. Only because gold's been around for thousands of years, there's a holding cost with gold. It's a scarce asset. These central banks used to be the amount of money they could issue was backed by gold. Now they can do any any amount. Um, that's why I. It's all about the diversification of a portfolio. Like there's risk there. There's there's always you know we could be wrong and we could go into deflationary spot. But that's why you got to balance these risks. And if they keep interest rates pinned down and inflation goes up. Real rates are going to go more negative, and a scarce asset that holds its value for thousands of years is gold. Um, is gold? So it's going say, to go up. So would you say to people, like, so in other words, part of their portfolio might be a bit defensive. It a, is defensive, um, but you can also make a lot of money if inflation yeah, totally. goes. Yeah. So well, you say yeah. to them, take maybe put ten or twenty percent of your portfolio into that, whatever the whatever you decide. Yeah, you want I might to do. say have five or ten percent or yeah, something. Whatever in. you're comfortable with. Yeah. But would you say to those people, buy shares in a gold mining company, or would you say buy the physical asset? You know, buy an ETF or something like that, a gold ETF. Well, if you buy just one company, you're, you're having those production risks. So you you might get the theme right and you might get the gold price going up and you actually might lose money. So I'd I'd, I'd probably do a mix. Sometimes I do a, a gold ETF that just tracks the, the gold price or other times I'll put in just the big uh, gold miners like Newcrest or Northern Star that are on good cash flow models, that have long lives, that are growing their production, that manage well. Uh, and if someone was really risky, you might go to a further down the the gold spectrum. But they're going to be higher cost producers. They'll have more leverage if the gold price goes well, but they'll also do worse if um, – Okay, I'm going to eat you up now. Give me three areas you think we should look at. 
Well, I, I believe in this inflation trade it's going to gather. Yes, it's probably gone too far in the short term and there might be a bit of a flush out. Um, so I, I actually think the next 12 months you still want to be holding hard assets that will protect you from that. So you might go BHP even though the iron ore price has gone through the roof and is over $200 a tonne and yep. eventually China will start getting from elsewhere and will go down. But there, you're getting a great dividend yield. You're getting fully franked. I think inflation's going to be here to stay in hard assets will be a good place. So that's a safe one for a portfolio. Um, so miners, yep. I like the the gold stocks. I really like those. They're well off their highs. They're unloved. We talk about the sentiments not really there, but um, money's gone into Bitcoin and things like that that gold would have previously got in this sort of environment. But, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, a lot of people talk about these like Tesla and all these international stocks. I mean, it's sort of the, the name, the big game at the moment. Um even with the name, his name, Elon Musk, like, you know, like, how do you get a name like that? Um, but like, he's so good at promoting everything yeah. around his business that doesn't have formed part of the fundamentals of Tesla itself. Yeah. It's been quite brilliant. And yeah. uh, and he's actually shown him how he can manipulate shit, prices of Bitcoin and all sorts of yeah, things. Uh, yeah. It's he was quite buying a, it and then he's selling it now because it's energy yeah, intensive. Totally. I mean, like, I think uh, that made part uh, of the profits, it, yeah. It's sort of like uh, he's just trying to test his power out in the marketplace. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it looks like to me. I mean, yeah. it, but it's, it's amazing how social mediums play an important role in momentum buying and the pricing off the back of momentum. It's just amazing to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, there'll be more of that. Yeah, I mean, we saw the, I think it was GameStop where all yeah. the, the young saw there were a lot of shorts and drove it up. These hedge funds that previously would win at this sort of game had to be forced out of it. And First time I've ever seen that happen. Yeah, I know. It's That's amazing. The power of being able to be connected these days is is quite amazing. Once upon a time, moment, it's now momentum versus momentum. The momentum was always the hedge funds pushing prices down or whatever the, that hedge fund might be trying to do. Yeah. But now it's they've they've actually um, come up against people power momentum, yeah. actual numbers of people as yeah. opposed to amounts of money in the in the in the can. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, we're heading into a new era. I mean, you're you've been around a while. Um, you must be finding this fascinating the way the market's moving around, changing the volatility. It's different sort of volatility to anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. How yeah. do you how do you feel? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, my game. I, I just try and the only way I rationalise it is it's ever evolving. Um, I also, it, it, there's no doubt it's a roller coaster and it always will be a roller coaster. And that's why I don't let try and keep the highs under wrap and I keep the lows not as, not as low as they are. Otherwise, I, um, you know, I have a terrible life. So yeah. you, you can come in with all the energy in the world and you, you can have a stock that's down 50% that, you know, in, in a minute on an announcement and it's just part of the game. You've you got to realise it's part of the game and know over the long term image? you're going to make a lot of Money. How do you deal with the brain Good damage? question. I'm not very good at it. And as I get older, I sort of take more stuff on, on I guess, myself. Mostly. And yeah. I feel, um, we, what do we have? These last 12 months, we've had a few days in Mudgee as a holiday. And I'm not good at getting away. I always feel like, because I take that responsibility of my You're clients. On. Yeah, I take that, that on and I feel like, but I need to get better at time out and time on. And that's what I thought I'd be able to do more when I at Orange. went to Orange, but it ends up you you go away to your office and the same sort of thing happens. Well, it could it? be worse. Yeah, oh, but exactly, it could be worse. I'm very lucky. It's yeah, great. T- totally. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I don't really ring you that often, but 
In fact, I never ring you. But um, and then when I my do clients ring, are I'm, very good too. I ring you three days later yeah. after you rang me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty bit late. I should have rang you that <laughs> afternoon this last Friday. But but um, not to say I'm not interested. But I, I mean, the last few conversations I have with you, as I've said, mate, can I give you some more money? Um, and you're saying no, 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 hang out, hang out. You know, <laughs> I, I just like because I'm one of those people. I'm just looking at my money earning nothing. Like, yeah, it's fuck all. No, that's you know? true, and that's and what these it kills um, me. I know, and that'll bring its own problems, I guess, for people that previously were risk adverse that are forced into things at I, the wrong time. I That's am risk adverse. You're right. The track. I'm risk adverse, but I'm actually I'm thinking by leaving it. In the bank, You're losing. Well, that's a risk. That's as well. a risk as that's, well. That's a good point. Yeah. And and I by not doing what I've done yeah. with you, yeah, I'm actually point. I'm I'm engaging in risk. Yeah. Because and I manage money, not thinking of your overall wealth, just think of that little pile I've got. So yeah. then I try and do that under the circumstances which will change depending on what's happening with whether it's interest rates, exchange rates, whether it's the businesses they're in, um, all those things. But I try and manage that risk and reward between companies and I guess that's what takes a while to get better at. I'm not going to be perfect for sure. I'm going to, There's always things going wrong and you've got to accept the markets are imperfect, things going so. wrong. But it's about managing that. Like does something go wrong? Do you sell? Do you buy more? Do you, you know, it's even if I, I don't do trading much these days, but even if you are, it's like, what to trade, when to trade, how much to trade. You've got to be always making decisions and for the right reasons. Peter Simpson, I found this uh, really enlightening. Um, it's been a great conversation. It is a brain damage business you're in um, because it is never follows the um, way you would like it to follow, um, the way you've analysed it to follow. There's so many things that can affect it that outside of your control and you can never predict those things ever. Like you could never predict COVID yeah. um, or anything else that's affected right. the market. Um, nor would you be able to predict the recovery post-COVID, um, which is amazing. So thanks for sharing your insights. Um, we'll get you back. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.